recently in AJP, just in time for a nice hot summer, that brings us into the very complex and integrated nature of human homeostatic regulation in terms of whole body physiology, renal cardiovascular responses, physical activity, and the environment in which we're conducting that. The authors explored the impact of exercise outside the thermal neutral comfort zone for humans to determine the impact on sodium-induced pressor responses and endothelial function of Black females. Sodium intake was a controlled low or high variable with pre and post analysis of body mass, ambulatory blood pressure, urinalysis, and flow-mediated dilation in participants that were randomized to undergo hot yoga for four weeks. The effect of sodium intake elevated body mass and blood pressure generally. Strikingly, though, it was observed that sodium-loaded participants at baseline reduced endothelial-dependent vasodilation, and those which actively engaged in hot yoga then showed increased flow-mediated dilation, but not blood pressure. At the journal, we felt strongly that this would be a catalyst to several hot topics, with hot yoga being just one of them. But overall, it piqued many interests in relation to the environment, hormonal, cardiorenal, micro and macro vessel endothelial pathophysiology, and of course the associated population patterns we know exist as risk factors to hypertension and exercise intolerance. So let's go to the source of this hot off the press article. Doctors Hunter and Carabo, welcome. Now that we are all in seated pose at this time, let's stretch into this with our cores and minds, shall we? So I wanna jump off if we can, mostly for new learners. So Dr. Hunter, thinking about new learners who might be graduate students or undergrads listening to this podcast who are interested in your work, they might be familiar with things like blood pressure assessment. But can you describe the importance of flow-mediated dilation measurements and what it is most often used for to kind of warm people up to that particular technique? Sure. So flow-mediated dilation is ultrasound imaging of a vessel most commonly used as the brachial artery. And so there are baseline images of the vessel and the baseline arterial diameter is quantified. And then there is a usually a five-minute cuff inflation to a suprasystolic blood pressure to completely occlude blood flow is the goal for five minutes. And then at the end of that five-minute period, um, we release the pressure in the cup to induce reactive hyperemia. This is also called endothelium-dependent vasodilation because the response is very much dependent upon the endothelial cells being stimulated to produce vasoactive substances of importance here being nitric oxide. And so the amount of vasodilation can be thought of to be just indicative to nitric oxide bioavailability. Um, the nitric oxide dependence of this measure has also um, 
been demonstrated in previous studies, though we did measure it here. And it's also related to uh, a number of things, but one being the future risk of coronary artery disease and also indicative of what's called subclinical atherosclerotic disease as well. That's great. I, I think that really sets the stage for us. I'll follow up maybe with just, a, again, a, a, another conceptual question that I, I think we need to kind of lay out there, which is in particular the the stories that we hear in the news, in undergraduate lectures um, that we teach that salt is a major dietary concern. Can you just remind us why this is so and help place us in the context, particularly for Black females? So salt is consumed in excess by most Americans. That is not something that disproportionately impacts Black adults or any other minority group for that matter. Um, approximately nine out of 10 is the estimate um, for the individual Americans who overconsume salt. And so this dietary practice, it's very common. Um, however, it has health risks associated with it that impact all, but African Americans are disproportionately impacted by it because there is a greater percentage of African American adults that are known as, that are deemed salt sensitive, meaning their BP response in response to variations in salt intake or sodium intake. Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic point to make here, that we're really talking about intrinsic physiological molecular responses. And we're, we're doing that in a, in a really interesting context. And I think this is something that really grabbed my attention, is that we're adding to this external thermal environment. And so I, I want to go over to you, Dr. Caravo, to maybe touch on this. About your impression in reading this article, what you kind of thought of combining that external thermal stress, the exercise as an input, particularly as one would expect there'd be some fluid shifting with sweating and salt and sweating go hand in hand. I, I was wondering what your impressions were just generally. So I really congratulate Dr. Hunter for this paper. I very much enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed it mainly on so many levels. One, it is a human physiology mechanistic study, and that is really very few people are studying in this in humans themselves, and mouse models are good, but not accurate for, for you know, studying this. And two, it is looking at several things, looking at impact of excess dietary salt, and then looking at also impact of exercise, not just exercise, but a unique form of exercise that is a kind of activating a unique mechanism, the parasympathetic system, if you will, yoga, you know, with a slow breathing activates that, and then the impact of heat. My expertise is mainly in um, impact of salt. And then another, another reason why this paper is really uh, transformative is it is studying black women. This population is excluded in all studies. All studies that, that, that have looked at soul sensitivity between whites and blacks are in men. You know, they've referenced two papers, specifically in this paper. Both these studies are in men. And also the studies that find women to be more salt sensitive have been done in whites. So I really congratulate um, Dr. Hunter for doing this and thank how very much for giving us some of the first insights of what is going on in Blacks. Some of the impressions that I got from this paper, so they did a salt challenge and the results indicated for blood pressure, it indicates that these people are salt resistant. <laughs> you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they are salt resistant because there was no significant increase in, uh, in blood pressure concomitant with salt intake. 
And that reminds me of a paper that was done by Dr. Fernando Elijovich, where they, they studied salt sensitive and salt resistant people. And they found that if you give them a salt load, the salt sensitive people have an increase in blood pressure. The salt resistant people do not have an increase in blood pressure. And the people who are salt resistant, the reason why they didn't have an increase in blood pressure concomitant with a salt load was because they were able to vasodilate. Their vessels dilated and that protected them from the increase in blood pressure. That, you know, just looking at the impact of salt, that was, uh, you know, a confirmation of that study that I got from this paper. But then there's a unique component also, also of hot yoga. I don't know about the impact of heat, but yoga itself, I have, I've been involved in another study with Dr. Cindy Shibao, who is an expert in autoregulation, you know, in, in, uh, in parasympathetic regulation. And we, we studied Black women, and we found that Black women have an inherent dysfunction of their parasympathetic nervous system. And when you target that system and you activate it, it, it was very advantageous in increasing their endothelial function. So this paper is a human uh, study confirming this. I think that yoga is, is activating the sympathetic system and that is really uh, beneficial for endothelial function. So this is a really important feature is how the entire system is reacting to the exercise. And I'm curious, Dr. Hunter, this was your design to incorporate the thermal stress of doing the exercise yoga in a heated environment. Can, can you walk us through some of the background that led you to explore that particular additional variability that overlays across some of this salt fluid and sympathetic parasympathetic that uh, Dr. Carabo just mentioned? Sure. Um, so We've done studies in both thermoneutral as well as heated yoga in the past in healthy adults for the most part. And so we found significant improvements in flow mediated dilation with both thermoneutral as well as heated yoga interventions when the yoga is performed isometrically. And I make that distinction because there are different styles of yoga and some of them are more isometric in nature and then some um, are more flow oriented. So we have found significant improvements in flow-mediated dilation with 12-week heated and, and thermoneutral interventions in middle-aged adults. So I really, I, I could have done this study in, a, you know, I, we could have used a thermoneutral yoga intervention for this trial, but I decided to use the heated yoga intervention because the added thermal stress and the implications that that would have on sodium balance. And obviously people are sweating profusely if you're working out in a sauna at 70 <laughs> degrees Celsius. So I thought that that would be the better choice to look into this question of, of whether yoga in and of itself could prevent sodium-induced endothelial dysfunction, but also presser responses to sodium intake. And correction, also, uh, it's 50 degrees Celsius, not 70. 70 is what they do passively. So the context is that we're overlaying multiple stresses. Yes. A beneficial stress of exercise, but also a potential beneficial or may possibly detrimental addition of thermal. Now, that's really important for a lot of occupations that are outdoors or even indoors, we have to carry a lot of kit. I'm thinking soldiers or firefighters. You, you know, there's a there's a consideration here to how our bodies respond during exercise, occupationally or for sport. 
and how our cardiovascular system on the micro or macrovascular level is, is contributing to either protecting us or not. Could, could you maybe add some additional context there on what your feelings were in looking at the results of this study in regards to that micro and macrovascular risk and people who would undergo hot yoga, but also might be doing this on the daily as part of their occupation? I think that's a, an interesting point that you raise because there are some people who choose <laughs> to expose themselves to heat, incorporating that into their workouts. And yoga is just one of the forms of exercise that is performed in heated conditions now. I mean, even high intensity interval training is done in the heat and, and some other styles of exercise as well. But then you have other individuals who are regularly exposed to extreme heat as a form of, of their occupations. And I do think that there could potentially be some implications there. However, in terms of the comparison of, of the yoga exercise, I think I would have to, I need more information. <laughs> um, That's fair. Yeah, I think we I need, all need more, more context to answer the question. I'm sorry. So I, I, have, I have some thoughts that um, based on work that was pioneered by Dr. Jens Titsi, that they find that sodium, people who habitually eat too much sodium, it goes and accumulates in the skin. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, the intervention was on top of what people were habitually eating. And um, I don't know exactly how much sodium they were eating, but I assume that they had been eating a lot of uh, sodium that characterizes the, you, um, the Western diet. And also, uh, one important aspect of your work is that most what you found the impact to be most was at four weeks, which was a long-term effect. So I'm wondering if this hit plus the exercise causes loss of this skin sodium through sweat. And that potentially can have beneficial impacts in, in terms of endothelial function. I don't know exactly. There are some studies showing uh, you know, re relationship with nitric oxide, but you know, that is kind of uh, a, a far-fetched link. But you know, maybe it is due to the fact that at four weeks, these people have sweated so much in heat and they have lost some of their skin sodium that was accumulated there due to habitual sodium intake. I do think that there are occupational considerations here. And I don't know, perhaps people who are regularly exposed to heat as a form of, in the form of their occupation, maybe there are some reduced risks associated with that. I think it's an interesting point. Salt storage, I mean, it, this could be something over long term where we create sodium reserves, either in the epidermis or in our blood, kind of make me think a little bit too about what tends to be sometimes still very controversial. And, and I've been in a few discussions on this in relation to salt sensitivity in good renal function versus poor renal function. I'm curious if just as an open kind of let's open this can of worms. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this because, you know, should we all go on the DASH diet? At, at 15? Or is it something that we need to wait until we have renal compromise before we worry about it? In, in this study, it would seem that if you're active or proactive, maybe that is enough protection to be less concerned. Is that is that safe to say? Less concerned about salt? I think so. I mean, I definitely think there need to be follow-up studies, larger trials with more comprehensive measures as well. But I do think that that's what the findings could potentially indicate, that maybe you don't necessarily need to change the diet if you simply just add 
you know, exercise and heat combined intervention or, or regular practice of, of those things, perhaps that's enough to, to mitigate some of the, the risks associated with the diet. I'm encouraged to hear that. I don't know if I could forgive myself for eating as much prosciutto as I do. Um, I, I usually try to mitigate that with antioxidants like blueberries and hascap, but maybe I should also add a little bit of yoga to the mix there. And we've touched a little bit on occupation. I, I want to just briefly sort of explore your thoughts on some additional risks. I know your study also examined and considered aldosterone, the angiotensin system, which we know this can be a, a significant barrier to exercise. As we start interfering with renin angiotensin aldosterone system, we do see some of our patients experiencing exercise intolerance. You know, I, I was wondering, is, is this a lead or follow complication that maybe we have to better manage or be aware of? Yes, I do. I, I think that that is something to be aware of. Exercise in a heated environment certainly adds to, in terms of exercise tolerance, um, it certainly heightens the perceived exertion of of the activity in which um, you are engaging. And I say that also from personal experience. I practiced hot yoga myself for about 15 years. And while the caloric expenditure is not higher, and that's been documented um, now, what is higher is the perceived effort involved. And so I think that could certainly um, play a role in terms of affecting people's tolerance for the exercise that they're engaged in. I, I guess part of what I, I worry a little bit about as, as we start to onboard uh, medications like mineral corticone receptor antagonists, you know, does this offer complication then to how we expect people to also follow lifestyle modifications in terms of exercise? And are we putting people at risk if they're choosing the right or wrong exercise to do for not only their salt sensitivity, but what medications they might be on? Yes, I do think there could be heightened risks associated with certain medications that are prescribed for renal function and, you know, for hypertension in general. So I think all of that needs to be considered. And we did have a long list of exclusion criteria for this study, taking that into consideration. Um, none of the participants were on any blood pressure medications. None of the individuals had compromised renal function. We actually screened for that at baseline as well. It was something interesting I noted in the studies is you had an exclusion criteria to antioxidant supplementation, vitamin C, vitamin E, alpha lipoic acid. Clinically, we've seen oral antioxidants are not very effective therapeutically, and we attribute that mostly to distribution. It doesn't get to where the oxidative stress is happening. Now, I presume that that exclusion criteria was to be non-interference with nitric oxide signaling. Is that fair? Or is there something more that you're interested in here later that might, might present new opportunities? No, you're correct. We included that as an exclusion criterion specifically for the flow-mediated dilation measurement, just to control for antioxidant supplementation during the three-day phase prior to FMD, which was measured during both low and, and high sodium phases. And Dr. Caravo, in, in reading this and thinking about endothelial dysfunction being the harbinger of cardiovascular disease, we've heard this phrase many times in the literature. <laughs> What questions are standing out to you that are foremost in your mind that you'd like to see answered as a next jumping off point? 
Yeah, so that in many, many questions come, and this is just an initiation of so many studies. And, you know, I saw that the, the authors would give out the data to whoever asks, but a follow-up study that I would see is to look at a change in salt sensitivity to blood pressure. You know, salt sensitivity to blood pressure is a continuum in the population. People use cutoff. So when you look at this study, they saw a four millimeter change in blood pressure that would be considered salt, not, not salt sensitive, but that four millimeter change might be meaningful to some people. So if you were to graph change in the blood pressure versus a change in endothelial function, what, you know, that may be, may have some meaning to differentiate between people who are more salt sensitive versus the people who are salt resistant within this population to see how they are responding and how this hot yoga exercise is helping them. And also you mentioned earlier about the tissue, so that sodium ac accumulation. If I can remember correctly, no study has, has been done to directly correlate this tissue sodium accumulation with salt sensitivity to blood pressure per se, the change in blood pressure that is all you know comes rapidly after salt load. No study has studied that, and then, you know it's you're right. There has been a lot of controversy, but there are really long term studies that show that the recommendation to salt intake long term they reduce cardiovascular risk. So you know if you eat salt for a long time, that is likely to damage your kidney through inflammation and can over time increase your blood pressure that is not considered source sensitive hypertension because even normotensive people can have source sensitive hypertension and also you also mentioned what are the mitigating factors that can protect you from salt dash that is good because of the potassium there are studies that have shown that potassium in the diet can um, can mitigate the impact of salt and you know exercise is a great thing as well so um, in this study is really a very great initiator for you know you know it creates a lot of questions as you think about about these findings yeah dr hunter you know salt sensitivity you mentioned in your paper has already been shown to exist differentially amongst white and black populations with significant clinical implications in, in various ways do you, do you feel we're starting now finally to break some of this ground on establishing the literature to resolve biological, epigenetic, social determinism, and environmental causation for some of these subgroup populations within the United States and globally? Yes, I do. I think we are breaking ground on that. I, I mean, but I do still think we have a long way <laughs> to go. I mean, I am encouraged by, you know, what I am seeing in the literature. And I think, you know, my study is just one of you know, one step toward that as well. Yeah, we're, we're often faced with a dilemma because we rely so much on clinical trials that are drug trials to have control populations to know what normal ranges are. But too often, they're neglectful of particularly females, um, but also neglectful of age stratification, which I think is really important. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Your participants were all premenopausal. Given that there's increased risk with peri and postmenopausal females, how should we strategize to reconcile some of these age and sex effects? And how are we going to work towards building a, a compendium or a reference database for things like salt sensitivity and including in that FMD and BP regulation and measures across diverse populations? I mean, you are 
pretty much touching on it here. We need more data. I mean, I think we need more data with age stratification. Like you mentioned, we need more information on um, subgroups of individuals. Our study had a pretty wide age range, and we did that intentionally because I live in San Marcos, Texas, where Black people make up only about 5% of the population. And so finding participants in environments in which, of course, we're minorities in general, but at least in general, we make up about 13% of the U.S. population. But the percentage is quite low where I live. So I think that we definitely had to consider that in terms of um, setting our inclusion criteria. And that was the reason why we made the age range so wide. In follow-up to that, I, I would certainly love to do a larger trial in which we had enough individuals who were considered younger and then maybe those who are considered in, in the middle age bracket as well. And then to look at menopausal status to see if, if that might influence our results as well, because I know we all know that that impacts cardiovascular function. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we need a lot more reference data such as that and more direct measures across these diverse populations. Dr. Carabo, you mentioned yourself, you had already some ideas of new studies, and I'll, I'll just put a plug in here for the journal that we have a new process to upload data sets iteratively and continuously to help facilitate physiological public database access. So really, really just putting that little plug in there. <laughs> you know, I was wondering if they call, collect blood. I'm interested in uh, the immune activation because I believe that this sort sensitive of blood pressure is an immune-mediated process in part. And also even endothelial function, some studies have shown that um, immune inflammation contributes to endothelial dysfunction and also you know, so sensitive to blood pressure. So it would be nice to see if the blood is collected to see if the, there can be a follow-up analysis to determine how that is um, contributing to the process. I agree. I, I agree with you. I think that that would be an interesting question to look into as well. And I even thought about maybe just PBMC isolation and, and looking at those immune cells, looking at superoxide within those cells to see if there is some conjunction or some correlation between the two changes in sodium-induced endothelial dysfunction versus changes in, in those markers. Yeah, that superoxide nitric oxide interaction happening right at the level of the bloodline and in, in the dome would be really interesting. I would, I feel like I could keep talking to both of you for, uh, for a while, but but I know we have to wrap up here at some point. But I, I would like to touch on what your final thoughts are if you were to start giving some directions out there to people. Because as I said, what we felt was that this was a catalyst to many really important questions and baseline data that needs to be collected and disseminated. So if you're talking to trainees or even seasoned PIs that might be interested in addressing salt sensitivity responses, what sort of uh, future directions or hopes do you want to see or collaborations you'd like to open up? Maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Hunter, and, and then touch it over to Dr. Garabo. I'd like to explore you know, more exhaustive measures of, of renal function in response to the salt load and also looking at different intervention durations here. So you mentioned earlier, yes, we, we looked at four weeks, which is a pretty short intervention, but it was also very intense where they did hot yoga five times a week and there are 45 minute sessions. So that that is very intense. And we did that intentionally because the intervention was so short. However, I, I would like to look at something um, 
with a more moderate practice frequency and, and just more so establish a timeline and changes in or sodium induced endothelial dysfunction. We shortened this five day protocol that we'd found in the literature. And most of the studies on sodium induced EP responses or, or sodium induced endothelial dysfunction in the short term, anyway, use a minimum of five days, usually five or seven days of salt loading. But we did decide to shorten it to three days, and we weren't exactly sure what we were going to find because, to my knowledge, I, I had never seen other studies um, utilizing such a short duration in the literature. And so I'd like to look a bit more into that, um, into the duration of the salt load, and, and also see if there can be more of a... Um, more of a standardization of the salt or the sodium quantities and also the durations in terms of looking at the adverse cardiovascular responses, because there there is so much variation in the literature. I feel like that's really where the flow media dilation results were salient in that, you know, that was really indicating a direct endothelial effect that was independent of whole body blood pressure, which we tend to use to guide our hands in managing clinical risk. And so I understand what you're saying. Integrating some of that, that flow media dilation as an early detection system almost might be better for sort of communicating the effectiveness of moderating our diet or moderating the type of exercise we do if we have a high salt diet and not be reliant on sort of macro uh, readouts. So, you know, really couldn't agree more. I, I think some integrative cardiorenal physiology would be fantastic. Maybe We'll have to talk with our sister journal here about some data collection strategies. And if you're listening, you know, reach out to Dr. Hunters if you're interested. Dr. Caravo, uh, come back to you. You know, if you were to give some trainees some direction for the future, what advice would you give them uh, as a physiologist? I agree that with Dr. Hunter that, you know, there's no standardization in the literature about, you know, the periods of sodium challenge. We have done some studies. We have recently published a paper in SAC research and others where we have done acute salt loading and less than 24 hours is enough to cause a dangerously high spike in blood pressure following a salt load. And we've been able to take that away and quickly we have been able to reduce the blood pressure. And, and, and so that, I feel like that is where the danger is for the salt and that's, that spike, which is almost like, like an allergic reaction, which is not being diagnosed at all by anyone. So that doctors don't are not aware that some people are literally allergic to you know to sodium intake, and that is where that you know some people die of stroke and heart attack due to this spike in blood pressure. In terms of where we go, I I love to see some of these studies which are you know are integrating the human the physiology as a whole, and also looking outside of the kidney in terms of blood pressure regulation. And this study is looking at vascular dysfunction. And, and yes, I know that the kidney is a vascular organ, but things like ENAC can be found elsewhere in the vessels. We find ENAC in immune cells and it is acting there to regulate blood pressure. So sensitivity to blood pressure in ENAC was uh, discovered by Dr. Grant Lido. He was uh, chair of medicine here at Vanderbilt. And he found that ENAC is really associated with so sensitive blood pressure. And initially it was assumed that it's mainly acting in the kidney where ENAC has been most uh, studied. 
But now we are finding that extrarenal ENAC, ENAC in the blood vessels, ENAC in mean cells, is also in, uh, contributing to source-sensitive hypertension. So it is really good for studies like this to come out and, and showing extrarenal mechanisms. Other people have looked at the brain. So I think, listeners, you've heard it here, big data has to go from molecular mechanisms to environmental exposures and integrate the physiological systems. We have to get back to fundamental core physiology in many ways to truly understand what's happening in our populations, within individuals, what the risk factors is. Dr. Hunter, can we expect some more studies coming out soon from your uh, research group in this area or others? Should we be patiently waiting or eagerly waiting? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can certainly expect to see more data on this topic or more papers on this topic from our group. We're actually working on a study right now that is related to this trial, but we're interested in sex differences. And specifically, as Dr. Tarabo mentioned earlier during the podcast, you know, most of what we know about um, salt sensitivity in terms of sex differences, those studies were conducted in predominantly white adults. And so I'm, I'm very interested in establishing some of that information or seeing if what has been observed in white adults um, with females having a higher propensity toward uh, salt sensitivity is also present in African Americans. So yes, we yes you can expect to see more papers from our group. Looking forward to that, and a good reminder that physiology has no barriers. It's it's from gene to environment, and uh, this is a great example. I encourage uh, young physiologists to give this uh, work a read. As we said, most of the editorial team felt that this was a catalyst in many directions hoping to see some collaboration maybe towards building these databases and reference ranges. So fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Hunter and Dr. Bravo. I really enjoyed this talk and I look forward to maybe meeting up at a meeting to share in some little sodium dinners or something like that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.